0: And a hundred dollar discount is available if you register before May twenty seventh. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode two hundred and thirty six of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. Over the last couple of episodes, I've been talking about keeping Jesus as the focus amidst a distractive culture. We have so many distractions around us, And yet, what does it mean for Christ to be first? Well, many of you know that for Daily Thunder with Ellerslie, I've been preaching through a series on the book of Colossians. And by the way, if you haven't been joining me in a study of the book of Colossians, I would so highly encourage you to join me. I've been creating session notes and study guides for each of these episodes to help you not just learn the content of Colossians, but begin to understand how to study a book of the Bible on your own. And if you're interested in joining me in the book of Colossians in that study, it has been so good. I've been so deeply blessed and we're about halfway through, but you can get all of that study notes and the study guides and, and you can go through it at your own pace and you can do all that. You can just click the link that's in the show notes for this episode and see all the details there. Well, I recently was at the passage in Colossians chapter one, verse 18, where it talks about the fact that Jesus is to be preeminent, that he's to be first in absolutely everything everything. Well, it was interesting. I I gave episode 234 a couple of weeks ago and that upcoming Sunday I was supposed to preach. Well, after I recorded that episode, a friend mentioned the Wisdom Pyramid book that I talked about in the last episode. And after reading through that, I, again, was just so deeply burdened for the days in which we live. And it all kind of just exploded (laughs) out in a message on that Sunday. And so I just thought it'd be fun, since it's kind of in the same vein as the last couple of episodes, to play you the sermon that I preached on from Colossians 1, verse 18, called The Preeminence of Christ. So this is Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18 He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Incredible passage. Uh, If you don't know much about the book of Colossians, uh, the church of Colossae was this really small city, in the Lycus Valley. It's in southern Turkey. Uh, there were three cities in this little valley. There was a church called Hierapolis, or a city called Heropolis, a city called Laodicea, and a city called Colossae. And back in the golden days, Colossae was the big city. It was on the major road heading over to Ephesus. Uh, this was the big place of the town, or uh, of this area. But what ended up happening is they moved the road down to Laodicea. This town started drying up, and basically at this point when Paul's writing this letter, it's kind of a Dried uptown. Yeah, the buildings may be there, but everyone's left. It's probably like Detroit, you know, where everyone's leaving. Nobody, or California. Everyone wants to go. Uh, so the houses are still there. The buildings are still there. Nobody wants to be there. And uh, scholars presume that when, the, when Paul is writing the book of Colossians, the church probably at its height was maybe 45 people. Which I think is Phenomenal. By the way, there's more than that. There's more kids <laughs> in here than that. But could you imagine? The idea was there's probably three small house churches, probably about 15, 20 people apiece. And they were just, it's a, small, it's a small town of a few thousand people, maybe. And so scholars say, isn't it fascinating that here is one of the smallest towns, groups, cities that Paul ever wrote a letter to And yet what he writes to this little tiny city is maybe one of the most greatest declarations of all of Paul's writings in terms of looking at who Jesus is. Because the whole book of Colossians is focused on just the grandeur and the majesty and just the whoa of who Christ is. And isn't it just an exciting thought that it doesn't have to be a mega church for Jesus to be revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? That you can have this little tiny house church with less than 45 people. And yet they end up being given one of the greatest declarations of Christ. Uh, Paul is in Rome when he writes this. Uh, he's in house arrest. And it's interesting that what we, as far as we know, Paul had never visited this church. Uh, Epaphras, uh, which we learn in chapter 1, uh, was the pastor of, of, the, of this church. He started it. He likely started the church in Heropolis and Laodicea as well. And here he is, he comes to Paul, he visits in, in, in Rome and says, hey, Paul, hey, I'm so excited, here's what, here's what God's doing in the church. We have some problems, though. And there's some false teaching that was creeping in that we hear about in chapter 2. And, and Paul, could you write a letter to this church? Could, could you somehow give an exhortation to this body? And so Paul writes the letter of Colossians. So it's a letter that he'd never seen or he'd never, he'd never been to this church It's it's a church that's wrapped up with a bunch of false teaching, and and there's all this ambiguity going on, and there's all this confusion of who Christ is. And so what Paul does is he stands back and says, okay, how am I going to correct the false teaching? How am I going to deal with these issues? How am I going to deal with a group that I've never even been to? And what does he do? Isn't it neat that he doesn't give like a whole list of do's and don'ts? And as you get into chapter 2, he he does get into some, you know, here's some clarity on some of this false teaching. But I love what he does in chapter 1. As you stand back and look at chapter 1, he gives an introduction. He kind of gives an overview. Okay, here's what I've heard from Epaphras. He gives us incredible prayer in verse 9 down to verse 14. But the emphasis of the whole chapter 1, which everything else is based on, is let's just talk about Jesus. As if to say, if we just talk about Jesus, think about this in your life. If we just talk about Jesus, that would somehow solve all of our problems. Isn't that true? Hello? I mean, isn't that true in your life? Isn't every problem in your life because somehow we have gotten distracted off of of Jesus? Isn't like if somehow if I could get Jesus in the middle of every single issue and problem and, and chaos of my life, somehow I think that would fix everything. Not that the problem goes away. Because, you know, I still got to fix flat tires. I still got to deal with the financial crisis. I still got to deal with family members. I still got to deal with whatever it may be. But somehow when you stick Jesus in the middle of the problem, it's, yeah, the problem's still there, but it's just, it's no longer a problem. And it seems like what Paul's doing in this letter. He's saying, look, I know the church has a bunch of issues. I I know the church has some false teaching. I, I know there's some concern going around uh, maybe let me put it into our context. Look, I know things are getting difficult. I know that our economy is uh, on the brink. Look, I know that the political system has some issues. So, how are we going to fix those? Let's just talk about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Isn't that encouraging? For those of you who are awake, that's phenomenal. Because that means I don't have to study the culture, and I don't have to study the economy, and I don't have to study the politics, and and I don't have to have all the nuanced answers to everything. Well, what do I need to know? Jesus. So look at what Paul is doing. In our passage, in verse 15 down to verse 20, Paul is giving this overwhelming declaration of who Jesus is. And he begins just to make this list of these overwhelming attributes of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now I want to give you five of these. I want to give you five attributes found in the passage. Some some people I've read have broken this into nine. I think they're wrong, but I um however you want to break this up actually doesn't matter. But I want to give you five. He starts in verse 15 and he says that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. That word image in Greek is the word icon, where we get the word icon. It's interesting that that word icon in the Greek, the the way or the proper way to understand that is it is an exact representation of something. And it's a revelation of something. Uh, The word has this idea of a picture, but that's kind of a, that's probably not even a good term in our language Because I look at a little sketch of someone and say, oh, that looks very similar to so-and-so. So So if you drew a picture of Bob, I would go, whoa, that's a great sketch of Bob, but that's not Bob. This word is is more intense than that. The idea is basically, uh, I have like, you know those like old wax seals? You know, you take this stamp, and it has some sort of an engraving on this piece of metal. And I put some wax on on some parchment, and I take the the metal thing, and I go, pfft. And I take the whatever is engraved on that metal. I shove it into the wax. And the wax is an exact representation, an exact replica of what's on the stamp. Does that make sense to you? That's probably a better way to think of this. In other words, when Paul says that that Jesus is the image of God, that he is the icon of God, he's not saying, well, he's kind of similar. Yeah, if you squint. Yep, they look really close. See, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is so emphatic that Jesus is God himself, that he's literally the stamp. And it's interesting, if Paul merely wanted to say that Jesus was similar in terms of like, oh, he kind of looked like him. He kind of, he kind of has a similar appearance as God. There's a whole other Greek word he could have used. So when you get into this idea, you, you cannot escape the fact that what Paul is doing is saying, Jesus is God. That if you were to look at Jesus, you see God Almighty. How many of you ever wanted to know, what, like, God, how does God think? You look at Jesus. Well, how, how does God behave? You look at Jesus. Well, when I read the Old Testament, God seems to be a mean, nasty God, stomping on people's heads, killing everybody. You cannot come to that interpretation properly because you need to see the Old Testament in light of Jesus. So if you're going to understand who is our overwhelming God, you've got to stare at Jesus, says Paul. And you know this because this is all over the scriptures. Let me just give you a couple of these. But John chapter 1, uh, we know that the, the word right was in the beginning, but in John 1.14 it says that the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, John one eighteen says, no one has seen God at any time. So no one's seen God. You're right. But we've seen God. You're right. Isn't that hilarious? Uh, in Second Timothy, Paul says that is called the mystery of godliness. And he says, without controversy, that's confusing. That you cannot see God, but we see God. How's that possible? Because it says in John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word lily has this idea. Jesus has revealed who God is. He has demonstrated, he has manifested God Almighty. So if you want to look at, at who God is, you've got to see Jesus. Maybe one of the best passages of this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Meaning what? You take God, you shove him in a little body, whoop, there he is. That's Jesus. In fact, Paul in Colossians in chapter 2 verse 9 says that in Jesus, all the fullness, all the fullness. Do you know what the word all in Greek means? All the fullness. Do you know what the word fullness means? It means fullness. I mean, the entirety. So, all the entirety. See the double emphasis of this? So, it's not just like all of God, but it's all the entirety, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And who? Jesus. So, I don't know how you're staying seated this morning, but this is incredible. Jesus is God. And so Paul is looking at you saying, oh, do you know what the answer to every problem in your life is? Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God himself. Now he goes on uh, in in verse, uh, verse 15, and he says, not only is he the image he says, number two, that he's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, firstborn's an interesting word. Uh, I think firstborn, and I think amen, praise the Lord, because I was firstborn. <laughs> amen. And all the firstborns said? Amen. 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 Unfortunately, that's not this word. <laughs> See, this word, firstborn, does not mean firstborn in the sense of origin. It's firstborn in the sense of priority or focus. Uh, for example, uh, Abraham had a firstborn son. His name was Ishmael. He was the firstborn. And yet scripture says, do you know who the firstborn Of Abraham was Isaac. And you're like, no, because he came out second. But in terms of priority, in terms of focus, in terms of the heir, in terms of the inheritance, he was firstborn. He was the priority. Isaac had two sons. The firstborn was Esau, but he was not the firstborn. Because biblically, the firstborn was called Jacob. And though Jacob was the secondborn, in terms of biology, he was the firstborn in terms of priority. Are you getting this? Uh, you have Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, you have uh, David's sons. There was a lot of sons of David before Solomon. And yet, do you know what the Psalms tell us about Solomon? Solomon was the firstborn that's, what the, that's the term they, they give Solomon. That he was the one of priority. He was the heir. He's the king. He has all the inheritance. Think about this. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Well, there's a lot of people born between Adam and Christ. I know, but we're not talking biology. We're not talking origin. We're talking focus. We're talking Priority. So if you look at the passage, Paul is saying, "Woo! Jesus is the image. Hey, he's God himself. But not just he's the image. Number two, he is the priority because he's the firstborn of all creation. If you were to look at the focus of all creation, what do you see? Jesus. Which comes in a, comes into verse 16, which number three is this idea that Jesus is the creator. Verse 16 says this, For by him, think about this, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's the creator of all things. Which tells you, when you go into Genesis chapter 1, and here is the triune God speaking light into the midst of darkness. Do you know who was speaking? According to Paul, it was Jesus. Let there be light. Those words came off the lips of Jesus. And yes, he was born incarnate 2,000 years ago. But folks, he's always and forever been. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first And the last. He's there in the very beginning. He is a part of the triune God. He is God himself. So Paul says, Woo! He is is God himself. He is the priority and the focus. And he is the creator over all things. In fact, all things are created through him. And all things are created for him. They're his. Now, I don't want to flesh this out. Because probably doesn't matter, but just for kicks and giggles. In chapter 2, one of the big false teachings that Paul's going to be dealing with is the false teaching of the Gnosticism, uh, the false teaching that Jesus was just one of many in the hierarchy thing. And it's interesting that both the Jews and the Gnostics had this huge hierarchy of angels. Uh, they loved just pondering angels. And they had all this hierarchy of angels. In fact, the way they would list the hierarchy... Is that they would use the terms thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And Jesus was just one in the midst of many. Paul, even before dealing with the false teaching, blows that out of the water and says, Jesus is not on your list because he made the list. So he is not a created being. He is the creator himself, which means he is uncreated, which means he is overall. Isn't that phenomenal? He's over all the physical, he's over all the spiritual, whether on earth or whether in heaven, which means there is not one single president or prime minister or king that has any authority over Jesus. That's good news. Hey, there is no political system, there is no economy. There is no angelic or demonic or human power that is over Christ. Why? Because he made it all. Oh, that's phenomenal. So you get this idea that Jesus is God. He is the image itself. You you have this idea that he is the priority. He's the firstborn. He's the focus of this whole thing. Paul gets into verse 16 and says, Woo! He is the creator of this whole thing. Then he gets into verse 17. Look, Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says... And Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Uh, The word there, before, uh, has this idea of coming before. (laughs) Brilliant, isn't it? Uh, But it can refer to both time or position. And that's both true about Jesus. That he is before all things, that he literally came before. He's the the preexistent one. So he is before all things, but he is also before in terms of position, that he is the head, he is the leader, he is the source, he is the origin. It's that kind of an idea. So so Paul is saying he is before all things, and in him all things consist, all things hold together. All things find its unity. If, If you want to think of it this way, he is the glue that holds all creation together. So he is the creator of creation, he is the goal of creation, and he's the glue that holds it all together. Isn't that phenomenal? Uh, In Ephesians, got to at least bring up one verse from Ephesians. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10, Paul's listing listing the blessings, and listen to what he says about Jesus. He says that all things in terms of the fullness of times are being summed up in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That all things are being summed up in Jesus. And and the idea there is like, imagine a big funnel and all this stuff goes in the top of the funnel and it's funneling down into a single point. Do you know what the whole point of creation is? Do you know what the whole point of eternity is? Do you know what the whole point of your life is supposed to be? Do you know what the whole point of everything is? Jesus. It's all being summed up in Christ. Why? Well, because he's the one that holds it all together. I love what this one scholar said. He said, so the son is the beginning of creation and the end of creation and the power who holds all creation together. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the final goal of the world. He's it. He's the whole focus. Are you hearing the emphasis? So we have this idea that Jesus is God. Oh, he's, the, he's the priority. He's the focus. He's the creator. He is the sustainer and the, the very focus, the goal of this whole thing. And then he gets into verse 18 and he says, Whoa, Not just that, but he's also the head. In verse 18 he says, He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, that word head it has this idea of priority has this idea of leader, has this idea of source, has the idea of origin, has this idea of position, has this idea of headship. In other words, he's, he's in charge. And so we, his body, come under the authority of Christ, who is the head. So Paul is saying, look, he's, he's the one in, who's in charge. He's the one that is leading this thing. Well, who's leading the church? It better be Jesus, or we're in trouble, Hey, who's leading our country? We don't know, but it better be Jesus. Or we're going to be in trouble, folks. Hey, who's leading your life? If it's not Jesus, you are going to be in trouble. Because he's it. He is the head. He is the focus. He is the origin. He is the source. He is the leader. He is the ruler of this whole thing. Now, it's interesting he brings up that word firstborn again. And it's the exact same word that was back in verse 15, which again is not of origin, it's a priority. He has the priority of the dead, he's the firstborn of the dead. That he was instituting a brand new thing in his resurrection. Hey, that he is the priority, he's the focus, he's the big deal of this thing. Are you, are you hearing the whole thrust of the passage? So I broke it into five things. He is God Himself, He He is the focus and the priority. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the head. And and however you want to break that up, it doesn't really matter. Because the whole emphasis of the passage is at the end of verse 18. The whole thrust of what Paul's doing in the entire book of Colossians is at the end of verse 18. If you want to summarize the entirety of the Bible, the end of verse 18 is probably a good one. If you want to summarize your life, the end of verse 18 is probably a good declaration to make. Well, what does Paul say? He says, the reason why I've been talking about Jesus, the whole reason we've been walking through all this, the whole reason I've been talking about the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ, look at this, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, The ESV says that he might be preeminent in everything. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Uh, Preeminent is not really a word that we use. I don't know the last time you used it. Uh, But preeminent has this idea of first, like being in the first place. Has this idea of like surpassing all others. uh, Has this idea of being the most distinguished. Do you know who Jesus is? He is the preeminent one. He alone is first. He alone surpasses all others. He alone is most distinguished. Now, it's interesting. When you look at verse 18, it says that he himself will come or he will be preeminent. And that word in the Greek is is fascinating because it has this idea of coming into something. It has this idea of, of taking a position. See what Paul is saying? He's saying, I'm telling you all this about Jesus so that in your life and in this church, Colossae, Jesus would come to a position, that he would come into this position of being first, that he would be the most distinguished, that that he would surpass all others, that he would be the primary, that he would be the integer, that, that he would be the, he would be it. Which demands a question. Is that true? I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, don't we? I mean, every song that we sing, oh, Jesus is to be number one. And we, we say the words so flippantly, it just comes off our lips so easily. It's just always, just it's always there. The real question is: is that actually practically true in your life? In your marriage? in your family, in the church? Is Jesus actually first place? I mean, I know we say it. I know know we sing it. I, I, I know we believe it, at least intellectually. But there's a lot of things that I believe that don't come out practically in my life. I mean, for years, eating healthy is good. But look at what I eat. Exercise is really important. Nathan, how much, how much time do you spend in the gym? Well, five years ago, I had a dream. And I saw a treadmill. And that has sustained, sustained me. I'm fine. See, I can know a lot of things, but if it doesn't practically come into the reality of my living, then that information's no good for me. So can I ask you, We know that Jesus is to be preeminent. We know he's to be first. We know he's supposed to be supreme. He's supposed to be distinguished above all others in our life. But is that actually true? Well, my church is all about Jesus. Is it really? I mean, my marriage is all about Jesus. Yeah. But let's watch it. Well, my family, the whole focus of my family is Jesus. All right, let's, let's see how you spend your time with your family. Isn't this miserable? I like the concept of Jesus. I do. I like it when He's over there, and, and I like it when I can do what I want to do, and I, I can come to church on Sundays, and I can tip my hat, and I can say, whoop, hey, ooh, 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 praise the Lord. Amen. I'm a Christian. And then I can go live however I want to. But, folks, that means He's not first. I've been really wrestling uh, with the culture in which we live. I, I don't know about you, but I, the culture has always been crazy. But over the last couple of years, it's been like crazy. And we have been, and not even just because of COVID stuff, but over the last decade, we have been increasingly living in a culture of distraction. We love distraction. Just just for kicks and giggles. Who has a smartphone? Smartphones were supposed to make our lives easier. Who here would actually honestly declare, yes, a smartphone has made my life calmer, less busy, and easier? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know why that's true? Because they have figured, and the tech giants tell us this. They are purposely figuring out how to distract us because their whole money is based on how many clicks they get, how much time you spend on the apps. So what are they doing? They are appealing to our distractive uh, lifestyles. I don't know what the term would be, but they are appealing to who we are deep down. We love distraction. And so they were giving us every distraction possible. So things are not making it easier for us. We're actually more and more distracted. I don't know if you've heard the, the statistics. And of course, you know, 92.3% of statistics are made up on the spot. But I don't know if you've you heard the statistics how the attention span of humans are decreasing and decreasing to the point where a goldfish has more attention span than the average human does. Which is not a good sign. <laughs> Why? Because, because we have to have this constant influx of distraction. If you watch a movie, you start noticing this, that they have learned that if they don't flip the camera angle every couple of seconds, you will start getting bored. So there, it's all about distraction. It's all about trying to keep your attention and, and the noise in which we live. Now, I, I, this week I was reading a book uh, called The Wisdom Pyramid by uh, Brent Brett McCracken. Uh, he writes for the Gospel Coalition, and uh, he wrote this book on what does it mean— not to be wrapped up in our devices, but actually live by the word of God and actually have wisdom. And he came with these couple of statistics, and I want to just read this to you because this was so mind-boggling to me. I I gasped, and then I laughed, and then I cried. Uh, But just listen to this craziness in terms of the distraction of the culture in which we live. He says this, speaking of the information age that we live in. He says, in 2019... A single minute on the internet, so think about this, one minute of actual time on the internet, a couple of years ago, saw the transmission of 188 million emails. So every minute, there was 188 million emails being sent. 18.1 million text messages 4.5 million YouTube videos being watched. That is a ton of information. And yet we are getting dumber by the day. We have more information than ever before. He says this. He goes on and says, By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the Internet than there are stars in the observable universe. I'll read that again. Last year, or two years ago, because we're in 2022, by 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. And some estimate that by 2025, so in three years, that 463 exabytes of data will be created each day online. And you're looking at me like I looked at the book. Which is the equivalent, so think about this, the amount of information that will be created online, estimates say, in three years, is equivalent to 213 million DVDs of information. Or to put it another way, and one exabyte, uh, sorry, five exabytes is equivalent to every word spoken by every single human in all of human history. Make any sense? So five exabytes, if you take every every word that everyone in human history has ever spoken, that only equates to five exabytes. But the estimates say that 463 exabytes are going to be created of information every single day, which means that the same amount of information that human speech has created over the last 6,000 years will be done every 15 minutes. That is crazy. We are onslaughted by information. We are onslaughted by constant data drips. Uh, Just for kicks and giggles, I looked this up too. In 2021, so last year, the average American, which I'm presuming not includes any of you, but the average American spent four hours a day on their mobile devices and 3.5 hours a day watching television. Do you know what that's called? Distraction. Uh, Most people check their phones 58 times a day, averaging about a minute, 15 minutes, sorry, one minute, 15 seconds every time they pick up the phone. And yet, sadly, strangely, 50% of Christian adults read the Bible less than two times last year. As a total. Or 61% of evangelical Christians have never shared their faith. Or a third of all Christians, a third of all Christians have not prayed within the last week. So we're wrapped up in entertainment. We are wrapped up in the information drip. We're wrapped up in the Netflix binge watching. We're we're wrapped up in, in in our phones. We're wrapped up in... But Jesus is number one! Is it really? Is he really first? In our lives. Uh, It's interesting. When you look at this idea of Jesus being preeminent. uh, When you look at the idea of him having first place in all things. The moment Jesus becomes second place. In any area of our life. Do you know what that's biblically called? Biblically that's called idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's, it's, it's fascinating. God is, is speaking to Moses and he's speaking to the people of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 20, <clears throat> uh, Exodus 20, verse 3 through 5, l- listen to what God says. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, we, we in our modern culture read that and we go, oh, I'm totally fine. I'm good. Why? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't have Buddhist statues. Yeah, I come to my house. I have no Buddhist statue. No craven images. I'm good. But you realize we're, we're not talking about external stuff here. Jesus took the external of the Old Testament and said, look, what God's really interested in, hey, what I'm really focusing on is not the external. I'm focusing on the internal. For example, God said in the Old Testament, do not murder. And I said, fine, I won't. But I'm going to take your picture, put it on the back of my door, and I'm going to take darts and throw at it every single day. And I'm going to ponder it. I'm not going to do it, but I'll ponder it. Jesus comes on the scene and says, now you can't even hate. He's dealing with an internal thing. Now, let me ask you, which one's harder, hating or murder? Uh, Jesus said stuff like this Hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And I said, Oh, bummer. Fine, I won't do that, but I'll think about it all the time. Jesus, now you can't even do that. Isn't it interesting that when you look at sin, we, especially in our modern day, we so often define sin as external, as an activity. But you know, biblically, that's not how sin is defined. Sin is not the external, sin is the internal. Now, there are some external activities that always have an internal issue like murder, like adultery. But you realize there are some good activities, actions, that can be done in the wrong why, the motive on the inside. Biblically, that's still called sin. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, for example, I love this example. Preaching. Yeah, preaching. Well, preaching's good. Amen. Yeah, preaching's phenomenal. Yeah, preaching's a great thing, and God can use preaching. But do you know that preaching could be sin? That if I come to preaching and the whole motive of my preaching is, oh, I want to be seen, I want to be heard, I want, hey, I want people to think I'm wise, and I turn within myself and out of my own resource, I produce preaching, though God may use the preaching, do you know what the Bible calls that in my life? Sin. Does that make any sense to you? Because it's not the action, it's the inside stuff. Prayer. Well, prayer is really good. Amen. But do you realize that if you come to a prayer meeting and the whole reason you're praying is so that, oh, you would look spiritual. And it's all done out of a pride and out of an arrogance and out of a, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Biblically, that's still called sin, folks. So though the external activity may look good, the inside stuff is what Jesus is concerned about. Does that make any sense to you? And yeah, the, ex- the external stuff matters, but the external will take care of itself if the internal stuff has changed. So God says, hey, no idols. And I go, oh, I'm fine. I have no Buddha statues. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get past that. Because I'm not just talking about the external physical item. I'm talking about the internal heart of who you are. Do you have idols of your heart? For example, if the whole drive of my life is money, success, fame, that's my idol. Some of us have made idols of entertainment. I just have to be distracted. I just got to watch the sports game. Oh, I just got to binge watch the Netflix thing. I just got to. Is there anything w- wrong with sports? No, not necessarily. Is there anything wrong with Netflix? Maybe, but not necessarily. I mean, they got Anna Green Gables on, on it. I mean, I like that. I mean, there's some fun nature documentaries. So it's not evil in and of itself. It's just, but isn't it interesting if I turn to something as the priority of my life, for some people, it's relationships. For, for some people, it's romance. For some people, and we in the Christian culture presume that because we don't have Buddhist statues we don't have idols and yet you look at our lives and we're so full of idolatry why because we're all wrapped up in ourselves in fact isn't interesting we have become so self-focused even in the church we become so self-focused about me and what I can do and what I can accomplish and what I can pull off and we have become our own idol. And we worship at the idol of ourselves. And the, and the first thought I have when I wake up is, oh, me. My favorite hymn, the old hymn, oh, how I love me. It's my favorite hymn. Yeah, the first thought in my mind when I wake up is me. What am I going to do and what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear and how, how people are going to think about me and what am I going to get done? And what? Our whole lives are wrapped up in about us, isn't it? And for so many of us, we have made ourselves our greatest idol. And we are working and we're striving, we're achieving. For what purpose? Me. But on Sunday morning, I come down to the church. Woo! Jesus is number one. Is it actually true in your life, though? God says you're to have no other idol in front of me. Nothing should should take first place. Nothing should have the priority. Nothing should be the focus of your life. There, there should be nothing that drives your life more than me. Uh, it's in- interesting that in Ezekiel, uh, the, the prophets, when you, when you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, do you know what the prophets are constantly harping the Israelites on? Hey, remove the idols. Repent of your adul- uh, adultery and idolatry and, and come, repent, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. Why? Because they have made something other than God first. Folks, I think that's the same message we in the modern church need to hear. That we've gotten so distracted with culture, we've gotten so distracted with politics, we've gotten so distracted with family life, we've gotten so distracted with entertainment, we've gotten. So we are such a distracted culture that with our lips we say Jesus is first, and yet when you look at the priority of our souls, is he? And the prophets were constantly harping back hey, return, return, return. Let's listen to Ezekiel 14, verse 6. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from your abominations. That's a passage we need in the modern church today. Repent, and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from your abominations. Uh, You look at the story of Hosea and Gomer. That's a romantic story, full of problems. Here's this good man, good prophet, uh, good, good Jewish guy, and God says, hey, I, I want to use you as a prophet. He goes, woo, thank you. I'd love to be used as a prophet. He goes, now go, and I want you to go marry a prostitute. What? And so Hosea goes over and marries Gomer. And isn't it interesting, Gomer over and over and over keeps running back to what appealed to her in the past. And Hosea had to keep going back after her over and over and over, saying, look, return to me. Look, I've given you everything that you need. Hey, I've given everything that you'd ever want. What more could you desire? And yet she kept returning back to filth. And at the end of the book of Hosea, here's what God says. God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, this whole thing was a picture of what Israel, my people, have done to me. That I have given them everything that they ever needed. And yet they keep running and, and, and committing adultery and idolatry with the world. And in, in uh, Hosea 14:1. God says this, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Folks, we do that. 2 Peter 1.3 says that Jesus has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So what do you need outside of him? What do you need outside of life and godliness? Yeah, I can't think of anything either. So why is it that when you look at the priority of our lives, we are so wrapped up in everything but Jesus? Why is it that we spend so little time in the Word? Why is it we spend so little time in prayer? Why, why is it we spend so little time wanting to get on our faces before the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Why, why is it that he's just an add-on to our life rather than the essence of our lives? Well, it's because I'm, I'm my own idol. So I made a short list Uh, just to make this practical. Is Jesus first in your mind, in your thoughts? I mean, when you actually look at how much you spend thinking and, and what you think upon, how much of that is Jesus? If I wanted to know what was most important in your life, all I had to do was look at three areas of your life. All I need to do is look at how you spend your time, look at how you spend your money, and what do you talk about. Because how you spend your time, what you spend your money on, and what you talk about reveals what is most important in your life. So if we were to analyze your life, and we looked at how you spent your time, we looked at how you spent your money, we looked at what you talk about, what's most frequently on 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 the forefront of your lips, what would that be? For a lot of people, it's sports. For a lot of people, it's entertainment. For a lot of people, it's work. For a lot of people, it's even good things. But if it's not Jesus, then whatever that is, has become an idol in my life, even if that thing may be good in and of itself. So what is it that you think upon? What does your mind go to? What about your emotions? What drives your emotions? Is your emotions driving your life, or is Jesus driving your emotions? What about your purity? We live in a culture where everything is so readily available, and yet we, oh, Christ wants to be first in the area of purity in my life, which means if I'm single, I'm called to be pure. And if you're married, guess what you're called to be? Pure. That God has given a covenantal romance relationship and anything outside of that is impurity, folks. Yeah, but I've got needs, and I've got desires, and I've got wants, and I've got... But would you submit those under the authority of Jesus? Is he actually first in your purity? Is he first <clears throat> in your rest and entertainment? When you're exhausted at the end of a day, what do you turn to? I, I grew up in a family that we did everything in front of the television. We ate in front of the television. We had family time in front of the television. We just loved the television. And there's this propensity in my soul that when I'm tired at the end of the day, what do I want to do? I want to turn on the television. Why? Because that gives me refreshment and rest, and, which actually is not true. I don't think I've ever left a television watching a movie going, oh, I'm so much better than I when I started. Do you know where true joy is found? Do you know where true rest and refreshment is discovered? I love what Psalm 16, verse 11 says. The psalmist declares... You, O Lord, make known to me the path of life. Your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, when I need rest and refreshment and pleasure and joy, do you know where that's found? Jesus. Is he first in your rest? Is he first in your entertainment? What about your marriage? Is he actually first in your marriage? Does he hold the supreme position? Is your spouse growing ever more and more like Jesus Because they're married to you? What about your family? Is Jesus genuinely first in your family? What about your work? Well, I've got to work. I've got to focus on my job. They they don't let me talk about Jesus. I know that. But what's the primary reason you're going to work? Wouldn't it be interesting if you went to work for his glory and his renown? And you might as well do your work and get paid for it. But what if the reason you went wasn't what if the reason you went was him? Are you getting this? What what about your future goals and desires? Is Jesus first in all that? Because again, what Paul is emphasizing in our passage is if there's anything in your life that is more preeminent, more of a priority than Jesus, that is an idol in your life. So look at the passage. Paul says, "Woo! Jesus is God. He is, folks. He's the priority. He's the firstborn. He's the focus. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of this whole thing. He's the ruler and the head. So that he would come into this position in your life of being first. So that he might be preeminent above all else. So that he would have first place in Everything. Is that true in you? Not just in language. Not just in desire. Is that actually true in our lives? I don't know about you, but as I've been pondering this over the last little bit, this is convicting. Because if you're to to look into my life and look at how I spend my time and and look at how I spend my money and and look at what I think about and, and what I talk about and I'm concerned that you would walk away going, well, yeah, Jesus is there, but what if there was no but? What if Jesus was it? What if somehow when someone encountered my life, they would just get overwhelmingly wrapped up and just, oh, you are obsessed with Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. By the way, do you know what we call people who live like this? Yeah, we call them Christians. Don't you want to be one? And sadly, a lot of us claim the title without looking like this. But what would it look like if Jesus truly was preeminent first in everything? So what if Jesus was your number one focus? What if he was your true delight? What if he was your main drive and your consuming passion and the beat of your heart and the light of your life and the thought in your mind and the word on your lips and the apple of your eye and the very center of your life? What if he was your North Star, your supreme focus? Is Jesus truly preeminent and first place in every area of every single moment of your life? The scholar comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've been reading the Old Testament. What would you say is the greatest of all the commandments? Do you know how Jesus answered him? Jesus reached back into the Shema of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and Jesus quotes the most popular verse to an Israelite. And he says this in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, The foremost, the most important commandment is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. Get this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Do you know what the word all means in Greek? But Jesus is quoting the Hebrew. Do you know what all means in Hebrew? It means all. All. he says, you, want to, you know what the most important commandment is? If you're to sum up the entirety of the Bible, he says, you know what the one drive of your life is supposed to be wrapped up in? Do you know what the whole focus of your existence is supposed to be? That you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Which means there is not one single area of your life allowed Not to love Jesus with all. That the whole beat of your heart and the whole thrust of your life is to be wrapped up in one single thing Jesus. Is that true in you? Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we, uh... Lord, I feel so guilty. Lord, I'm busy doing so many good things. In fact, I'm doing a lot of spiritual things. And yet, Lord, I fear that I'm just, I'm just a hamster on a wheel and I'm spinning my wheel and I'm, I'm going 100 miles an hour, but I'm not going anywhere. Lord, I, I, I say with my lips, oh, Jesus is number one. You're the focus. You're the big deal. But Lord, I fear that that may not be true and how I live my life in the day-to-day reality. God, we as, we as your body are so distracted. Not just with the world, we are distracted by good things. And our whole lives are wrapped up in things that are not you. So Lord, how can we with our lips declare that, woo, Jesus is number one. But then with our lives, declare that, Well, at least you're on the list. Lord, forgive us for putting anything in a position higher than you. That I've sought my own success. I've sought fame and prestige. I've sought money or family or pleasure or rest far more than I've ever sought you. Lord, forgive us of calling ourselves Christians and yet living lives full of idolatry and adultery. Lord, what this world needs to see is not Christians who merely say they're Christians and go to church and do all the religious activities, but the people who genuinely make you first in all things. Uh, Heads are bowed. Where are you at this morning? I encourage you not to make this just another message you hear on a Sunday morning. Could I encourage you not just to to nod along and go, Woo, yeah, Jesus number one, that's great. And go have lunch and then go do what you want to do. Would you somehow allow the Holy Spirit to come and test your heart and your mind and walk through your life and put his finger on stuff, saying, What about that area? What about that aspect? What about this thing that's hidden in the corner? What about that habit? Is it possible for, for Jesus to get so in the, involved in the everyday moments of our lives that he's not just a part of our life, he becomes our life? Don't you want that? And can I encourage you if there's things in your life that God is putting his finger on? Would you find yourself at the foot of the cross? Would you find yourself in a in a position of humility and surrender? And and hey, we're going to take communion this morning. Would you, before you even take communion, could you could you just spend some time with Jesus? And and don't take communion without him being first in your life. And if there's things, hey, would you repent and would you give those to Jesus? And would you just invite him to to infiltrate and get involved in every aspect of your life and to radically change you and just, I don't know about you, but I, I need this. I need him in my language. I need him in my thoughts. I, I need him in my work. I, I need him just in how I rest. I, I need him in the everyday moment. I, I need Jesus. So, Lord, we are your people. And Lord, I confess that I have been living in idolatry and adultery with the world with you. And I've said you are first, but I've lived as if you're just on the list. So Lord, would you forgive me? And would you be, be, be preeminent? Would you be first in my life? For you alone are worthy. Well, I know that sermon was long, but thank you so much for listening to that message. Ah, that is such a deep burden in my heart for every single one of us. May I encourage you don't just listen to this episode and just run off to the next thing. Would you spend some time with Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to search and try your heart to see if there's any idols in your life? Is there anything that you have placed before Jesus Christ? Well, again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including sermon notes from that message you just listened to, as well as other resources to help you grow spiritually, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 236 for episode 236. And until next time, know I am praying for you and cheering you on as you build your life around the preeminent one, Jesus Christ.